This is First Contact, stories of the call center. Brought to you by Noble Biz, your one-stop shop for all your contact center needs, both carrier and software. Each show, we talk to industry leaders on how they got their start in the call center industry, because let's be honest, it's not a dream job. Find all our episodes, you can go to our website, that's www.nobelbiz.com. Hit subscribe on our YouTube channel, or follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for future episodes. I'm thrilled to have Steve Biederman with us. Steve is a highly regarded contact center industry innovator and expert in corporate restructuring and strategic growth. He is the current president of Nobel Biz. Steve, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, great. Thanks for having me. I look forward to uh, talking a little bit about what got me into this industry. But listen, it is a dream job. It took about 20 years to get to that, but I would say it is. Well, I'm glad to hear you're living the dream. I always tell people, just don't wake me up. So let's start from the beginning, right? When you were a kid. When I was a kid, I did grow up in Chicago, Illinois. Actually, phones were a pretty important part of our life. My father was a surgeon and uh, did a lot of uh, emergency care in the middle of the night, and that phone was ringing off the hook. So I do know a little bit about being interrupted in my life from, from a telephone. Well, there's definitely a lot of interruptions today via phones, but when you were a kid, though, outside of the phone, were there any pastimes that suck with you? Well, sure. I uh, Actually, I think I developed my drive from, uh, one, watching my father, who was a hard worker and willing to, to work no matter what was at stake and what was in front of him, and I, I learned how to keep one foot in front of the other. I would say, too, that uh, I was an athlete. I uh, played tennis, and in tennis, I uh, became a nationally ranked player, and I was sponsored by Spalding, and in doing that, again, learned a lot of discipline at a pretty early age. Wow, that's amazing. But when you translate that, and you said the discipline from your dad, I mean, how did that translate into you as a student? I mean, how did that work with you as your studies went? Well, that's funny. Uh, I never felt like I could meet the level that the pedestal put him on or that I put him on. And so I did the opposite. I wasn't very good in school. I, uh, I was not a studier. I was uh, somebody that had a lot of fun and, and played games and uh, preferred to go work on my sport than... Uh, you know, than, than my studies, but somehow in a house with uh, parents as intellectual, some of it did get to rub off. Well, with that said, obviously it sounds like with all the fun and the games and things, even if you weren't really excelling or choosing to excel in schooling, how did that manifest after school though? So after high school, what happened? A lot of the young people I was in school with were thinking about what did they want for their life and their career. The truth is, it never even occurred to me to think about that. And I felt like an outsider to most people. So when I got out of high school, uh, I did have scholarship offers for tennis, and I didn't take them because I really didn't want to go to college at that time. Uh, I would tell you that instead, I went to Europe and the Middle East and traveled around. And in those days, we were all hippies uh, 
drifting around, as uh, James Michener wrote in his book, called The Drifters. And inevitably, I did come back to college, and I began to work on uh, what I thought was important and interesting, uh, which was uh, Black American studies and creative writing. So those were my focus, and uh, somehow I made a leap between that and uh, actually being a businessman. Well, it's interesting. Having such a mix of background on your travel and not really using education in its strictest form as the driver for you going into your next chapter into a career, what did the job scene look like for you? So, you know, what was your first job like? Well, my first job was in music. So after college, Uh, And through college, I played music to earn a living and played uh, singer-songwriter, one-man band in in bars and uh, did pretty well and inevitably uh, got a recording contract. And so the first substantial position I had was as a musician and playing music. Uh, After I left that, because my family felt that, my father essentially felt that that was no... Uh, no position for the son of a doctor, I uh, had to go to work. And I began my my working life making sub sandwiches and pizzas, cleaning a deli, all for $1.85 an hour, and put enough money together to get an apartment. And uh, from there, I met my wife. And uh, my wife is well-educated and brilliant and, and all of the wonderful things that I didn't see myself as. Uh, but she said one thing to me. She said, if I'm going to be with you, you need to have one job, not a bunch of, of small jobs. So I went out and got the only job I could get, and that job was at a call center. And I I think that's a similar story for many people in in call centers. In my case, this was in uh, the lawn care industry, selling uh, chemical lawn care. And I had to make six sales with no commission just to keep my job, which was at $805 a month. And six days a week, we did it. And I needed a job because I I wanted to be with uh, the person who would become my wife. So my entire focus was to have something to support my relationship. And it's, it was way too busy and too tiring to, to do anything else, like study or become uh, something greater than a call center agent. Wow, Steve. I mean, it's an amazing story if you think about it, because you're, you, you, you go out, you travel the world, you come back, you end up becoming a musician that actually can make an income off of it. But instead of allowing that to become your future, um, as part of your family, and especially it sounds like with your relationship with your dad, it really threw you into another realm of work that really had a lot of different odds and end jobs and different situations. But it looks like the love of your life really drove you into finding a career, something that was more focused and you're saying that's what puts you in the call center industry. So, I mean, now you're in the call center industry. You're at this point in life. You've experienced these things. Known when you actually started out. Well, it's, I think even then, as I was toiling away on the phone, 
uh, I was thinking a lot about I wish that I had been more serious about my education. And I'm a big believer today in education. And being an agent was like many people, I think, who become an agent. You know, they have a need and they, they can do it. And they have the uh, personality that says they can make another call or interrupt somebody uh, in their home. And, and that was really all I could see. And honestly, I didn't want to sit in a, in a room packed with a bunch of people, very loud room and people uh, smoking in those days. Uh, and I just couldn't imagine how do I do that for the rest of my life. What I ended up doing was saying, well, maybe I can be a manager. The problem was I had no education. And what I had, uh, back to your question, what, what I realized, which was I had no training, no mindset for business, no education for business, no experience in how to learn. Although my personality worked well, it certainly worked well in music, uh, it didn't, to me, translate, uh, other than being able to make a sale as a call center agent, it didn't translate to how do I be a manager. So I went to the owner of this company, the company was called Evergreen Lawns, and uh, Dick Miller, who became one of my mentors in my life, was growing this company, and he grew it from 17,000 uh, customers when I was there to uh, over 80,000 customers, so there were a lot of sales going on, and he seemed to know really well what he was doing, and I just said to him, hey, I want to be a manager. And honestly, for uh, three or four times, I kept going back and he kept throwing me out of his office. At first it was, who are you? Don't come here. I didn't hire you to come to my office. I hired you to make sales. Eventually, I decided I'm going to write up uh, a proposal to him. I had no idea, no experience in writing a proposal, but I did. I wrote it and I, I put it on his desk and... Uh, Next thing I knew, he waved me into his office through his glass panels and uh, said, hey, I think you left something on my desk. And I said, yeah, you know, I'd like you to look at it. It's a proposal. And he took it and threw it on the floor and sent me away again. But sometime later, and my perseverance took hold, he came to me when he lost his sales manager and said, okay, Biederman, you're up. And that's how I started in management. So, Steve... That situation for someone who's driven and wants something and they know they can do it, I can imagine that being something that they're just not going to take no for an answer. But what what in your life would have driven you to have not been like most people that I will say when you get told no, you just get back in line. Most people um, won't be continuously following up towards that dream, towards that situation of potential confrontation with your leadership and to give yourself the, the boost of being able to go back in after you've been told no multiple times to say, hey, I have something of value here. I can really contribute because I can see a lot of people just getting discouraged. So how did you find, did you always have that drive or was this something that you got later on in life? No, I think I had it. I mean, honestly, as a tournament tennis player, as a young person, I had to learn how to win. I had to learn that oftentimes winning came after losing and uh, failing or you would fall behind and, and the other person was becoming more dominant. But 
uh, you had to find a way. And I did know this, uh, and through that experience specifically, that, uh, and I, I guess I always felt this, uh, my earliest coach told me that all good things come to those that work their ass off. And I just kept at it. I kept working. I'll tell you one of the things I realized with my education being lacking was that I had to self-educate. I began by buying a, a business book and saying, okay, I'm just going to start reading every day. But I couldn't really do it. And I couldn't learn that way. I couldn't get through the book. But because I had committed to it, and my experience in life was to stick with your commitments, I, uh, I got a whole bunch of books. And I began to just read 10 pages a day in one book or another book. I did that, frankly, for decades. And I filled up the vessel with education, which didn't give me any epiphanies, but it did absolutely give me a level of confidence that that I was learning something and that I was, I think the confidence was more that I was more serious than the job I had portrayed. And the influence of people around me was great. Uh, my wife, uh, I admired her and she was uh, a technical person in software and uh, worked hard. And I could see she did something with that, and I and and it looked good to me. And of course, my father, for reasons that weren't all positive, but in the sense of staying committed to something, and me wanting to prove to my family that that I could do something and be successful at it, uh, those were big drives for me. And and being told no, well, you know, I don't know why that never really stopped me ever in my life, and uh, certainly doesn't today. Well, Steve, that's awesome to hear. And, and one of the things that is really compelling about that is the idea that uh, if you want something, if you want to be able to aspire to something, being able to live within that scenario of adversity or uh, in your specific situation, you had a lot of successes, right? You had a lot of no's, but they always were with the yes in the end in mind. So you had music, you went into obviously a, a relationship with your wife you were able to change how you were living to be able to accommodate a different type of uh, job. And then now you're in a situation where in this job, you had a fight to get yourself in this position. So there's obviously lots of moments in which that drive provided you success. So let's really talk about in your experience though, any major setbacks throughout life? Many, uh, but you know, one of the other pieces as you're thinking about what were the key components of who I am today, was uh, really a belief that I didn't like it. I didn't like how people looked when they were feeling sorry for themselves. I didn't like the, the look of self-pity. And that never entered into the equation for me because it wasn't what I liked in any given moment that drove me. And, and so I was able to wake up the next day and do something else with it. Uh, but listen, it did lead to uh, my life and life has uh, its moments of disaster. And I've had plenty of those. I've had them personally and I've had them professionally. And uh, ultimately, uh, yeah, I had success. But uh, it was through the learning of uh, things that broke, and I broke a lot of stuff. Well, I, I can't imagine it's always a win, uh, one after the other, but obviously there's got to be some failures that stick out to you. Anything in particular that you failed at? 
Well, my first big job was, uh, as I said, being told I could be a manager. And there were 25 salespeople in this room. And when he told me, Dick Miller, that I could be the manager, I was really excited. And the next day was a Saturday. And in that day, I was like planning to be the best manager ever in the world. And I was going to do things that uh, were just remarkable. So I went into the room on a Saturday morning and the only people there on a Saturday were the salespeople and we were all about to get on the phones and instead I said, let's all talk. I'm your new manager. Let's all talk about what we can do to improve this environment. And we talked the whole morning and I came up with a, a a list of improvements for the company. And I could not wait on Monday to take it to Dick Miller and show it to him. And he said to me, yeah, I understand you you had a long meeting on Saturday. How did it go? And I said, well, it's great. I've got this whole list. And he said, well, leave me the list. And I'll tell you what, on Tuesday, I'll come in and I will hand out, you know, paychecks. I felt like I, I was on top of the world. He was impressed and told the salespeople that and they were excited because he didn't usually come in and look at what I pulled off to get him in there. And then he came in and he was very soft-spoken and he said, well, hi, everybody. I'm here to talk a little bit about your list and, and give you your paychecks. And he said, I just want you to know this. He said, I looked over that list and well, Maybe the best way to tell you what I think about it is this. I hire you as salespeople, and when I pay you, and he took the checks and he, as a whole, and he threw them down off, out of his hand on the table. He said, we're effing even. Get your asses back on the phone. Wow. And he turned around and walked out. And I'll tell you, my first moment in management was a gross failure. <laughs> so. Half of that sales room quit that minute. They just walked out. And instead of 25 salespeople, I had 12 salespeople. And I was humiliated and I was embarrassed. He came in later that day and he said, so how was your day? I said, well, obviously I did something wrong. I don't know what I did wrong, but uh, he said, well, look, you guys got sales to make in here. What are you going to do? You need to hire some people. And I said, well, okay, you know, I'm trying, I'll, I'll get with HR and try to hire people. And he said, you mean you haven't done anything yet? I said, well, I didn't know if I had a job. He said, oh, oh you'll know if you don't have a job. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I went to hire. He said, but I want to teach, I want you to learn something. He said, when you make somebody, like when I make somebody a manager, our company's doing pretty well. I make somebody a manager because I need that seat filled at that time. I don't need a revolution. I just need that seat filled. I need maintenance. Over time, with continuous improvement, you begin to learn things that improve an organization. But the only true outcome you had from this experience that you had on Saturday was you didn't make any sales on Saturday. The next Day, which was the day I threw the uh, paychecks down, you lost half your group and you own that. So you have to be the solution. Let's take a break with a word from our sponsors. For over 20 years, Noble Biz has been the leading innovator in the contact center industry. 
from world-class productivity and compliance solutions to our dedicated customer support and service, Noble Biz does it all and at your service 24-7. Visit www.nobelbiz.com. That's www.nobelbiz.com. Nobel Biz, providing contact center innovation since 1998. It's the hard knocks, right? You were learning the hard way uh, through uh, him teaching you something and maybe you got something out of it. So, I mean, when you think about stories in the industry, generally speaking in the contact center space, are there any stories that stick out that really are a driver around how the industry was for you and what it exposed to you? Yeah, it really, honest to goodness, Although it's a slow adoption industry, it really is remarkable in many ways because it, it, it's an environment that you have to work with a lot of people and you have to be able to coordinate a lot of people into the outcome that you want. I started after this job with a multinational company called Chemlon to where I had the opportunity to convert They had 167 independent branches, and I got to convert them into a sense of consistency, which was not existent at that time. And I was pretty young, and I didn't have the experience, but I was reading a lot, and I was beginning to learn, and I had already had some failures, and I was learning from that too. And I saw, though, the power of Anyway, it's what I knew. So I was given this job to bring consistency to Chemlon. And it wasn't because every branch had their own design of how they manage customer service and environment. And so over time, we moved all of the local customer service to regional and national contact centers. So they were taking inbound calls. And then we took all of the lead generation and we created an environment very similar to what I had when I was in a call center myself, where you had uh, hundreds of people in an environment calling. Now remember in those days, there was no automation. So they were calling just off of straight handheld telephones and we put lists in front of them to call them but through that experience I began to learn about reporting I would tell you the most powerful thing I learned was training which was how do you train a group of people to with the same message in a positive environment while maintaining the culture and there was a lot of work put into it but Kemlon had one basis within their company and they had signs all over the company and it said you don't know what you don't measure and that was a driver for me because I was like soaking up information anywhere I could get it and so we measured we measured how to contact people we measured you know how how long it took to close a deal how long it took to train somebody properly and on and on and on so when automation began to come into play uh, and in my case that was uh, late 80s early 90s I, I was excited because the automation could reduce time and create efficiencies that I wasn't getting picking up a telephone it was hard though to integrate it and it led to other changes within the industry well I mean 
it's not all too different nowadays, right? You have companies that are all over the country and even all over the world and being able to centralize how they do things, being able to make it repeatable and scalable and reporting. Absolutely. Being able to have access to abundance of information nowadays is uh, vastly different than before of how you can access it, but how you can use it, how do you actually manifest that into business application is important. So, you know, you talked about measuring things, which I think is really important. But when we talk about business success, right, you're in these different organizations, you're seeing them grow, you're seeing companies scale. How do you actually measure business success? It's easy. Uh, That goes to core value and it goes to your own rules and your morality, your integrity. And, and so for me, it was always the same. It's, and, and it always was the same. And hey, fortunately, from my first mentor, uh, I learned this piece from him too, which was uh, make a promise, keep a promise. I mean, no more. It was as simple as that. Make a promise, keep a promise. And how that played in the contact center world was, well, we were all selling. In our regional and national call centers, we had hundreds and hundreds of agents selling something. And it was very easy to see when somebody was not sold what they should have been sold or oversold, per se, or lied to, or even in customer service, not told the truth, or not giving a refund when you should. And a lot of my job was dealing with those always was it was incredible I was incredulous that and not tell the truth on a telephone call to make a sale even when they knew they would be found out it was as if they couldn't hold themselves back thus when call center technology came on board and you had uh, the ability to listen in on a call and coach, for me, that's make a promise, keep one. And as contact center dialers and came into play, they became the, the center of the universe. They became the mission critical piece in every business. If it didn't work, you died as a call center. You risked dying. And if it did work, then you had opportunities to be successful. The only guarantee was if it didn't work, you could kill a call center. So I took that on uh, every day, which was we have to sell what we have, not what we don't have, not hope, not a roadmap, but what do we have today that can benefit the client? And is it dependable enough that I can take the responsibility of somebody's business it was easy. You just make a promise, keep a promise. So it then becomes, what's the formula to do that? How can I make sure that happens? None of that had to do with making money. Making money is the outcome. That's definitely true from the perspective of if you have happy customers, then it'd be difficult to believe that they won't come back, right? Or that they won't stick with you and purchase from you. But as we transition to a world in which People live in different parts of the country, you know, have access to talent pools in various places, whether it be call center agents, whether it be uh, members of your leadership and management teams. Have you been in positions in which you've had to have 
management of a virtual organization? And if so, do you have any keys to success or even challenges to managing organizations? My first experience with managing remote people was when I was at Chemlon and I had people all over the country. But we didn't really have the technology you know, to allow for ease of management. So it was really with a lot of phone calls, uh, conference calls, a lot of airplanes and traveling and showing up. Uh, and listen, to this day, I really believe in management, that management has to show up, not be on a pedestal, but show up and integrate into the environment you're at. So if you can get the same culture everywhere you have staff and if that culture can be based upon your core value in my case make a promise keep a promise see yourself as a promise keeper and everybody can can own that well, you're making a big step so how do you do that uh, with technology today it's now we have the ability to do video conferencing. We're doing it right now. We have the ability to look the other person in the eye. And I believe in the technology that allows us to to communicate. You know, I've always believed that the old water cooler experience is an important one with your staff. In other words, we just are both standing at the water cooler and we get a chance to communicate and talk and, and, and just get to know each other. And that isn't the same when you have remote agents or remote staff uh, in different places in the world. So what is compensation for that? What is an alternative to that? Well, one is just being aware that you need to ask people about how their life is and what's going on. So part of it is just culture and, and consistency and truly caring. Always stay in management mode. Be a promise keeper. But the other piece is this. What is the, uh, if I can't see you at the water cooler, there is some great value in what happens in a video conference. I insist upon it in my businesses. It's because you're always looking at the person eye to eye. Even when you're standing at the water cooler, you're not always looking at the person. But when you're on video, you have to. You better look at the other person eye to eye. And that can establish a great intimacy. And that intimacy, if used and and you insist that your management uses it and, and works in that environment, uh, that becomes the basis with, with which you can build your culture. So it sounds like what's been successful in this is obviously to still have in-person time, but fill in some of the gaps that you inevitably have by not visiting someone, always traveling via plane and showing up via train, is to really have video, to have a, as a supplement to that interaction. But to make those interactions less transactional and more personal, right? Through looking and talking through them via video, looking and talking to them when you see them in person, but make the situation and interaction remote in nature, still culturally part of, as you say, promise keeping, uh, seems to be a big driver here for you and being able to have potentially your leadership and staff uh, leverage that throughout an organization because of course you're not everywhere at all times so my guess is you would have to have that culture really 
in every space of where you have your organization for it to continue, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and listen, it's about investment. It's about uh, owning it. And it's about recognizing, which is control everything you can control. And then do something with it. In other words, don't control because you're powerful. Control because the value pieces that come from being as aware as you can allow you to make appropriate and good decisions. Well, that relates back to the individual, to the agent, all the way to the agent and me sitting in the president's seat. If that agent doesn't feel connected to me, they will not necessarily own the same culture. And without the culture, you get a mixed review of outcomes. With culture, you have a, a specific piece that allows you to control the message of culture, of promise, or whatever that core value is for you. So to me, uh, you have to start, it's a layered thing. It's a basis. It's an investment. It's know everything you can know all the time and do something with it all the time. And if I do that, Christian, and you do that as a manager, and every manager does it as holistically as I'm doing it, and you take that to your people and you give them tools and remove obstacles for your agents to be able to make phone calls the way they need to make phone calls and own outcomes. In other words, allow them to make decisions give them some parameters for those decisions, but don't take responsibility away. Give responsibility. And if you can do that over and over and over and not punish for bad decisions, but learn from those, unless they're really excessive, you should be able to learn from them. And then Keep doing it every day, 365, every day, every minute, over and over and over. I have seen the outcome of it with my own past company, Touchstar, and it became a passion play of hundreds of employees living the passion of the culture and the gift that we got to go to work every day. And that's, you can do it in a contact center, you can do it anywhere. Well, I'll tell you, there's no lack of passion in that response. And obviously, when it comes to not just set it and forget it, there obviously is an active role, not only you in the leadership role, but with everybody else that you work with, whether it be the frontline agent to the managers and supervisors, to everybody else in between. So let's really look at what does the future look like for you, Steve? I mean, what's the next chapter? Wow. Um well, it's doing what I'm doing now. You know, I built Touchstar. We are uh, we're a, a contact center uh, technology company, and we manufacture our own call center technology. It was on premise in those days, and inevitably we moved to the cloud. And and through the same approach, we built into one of the fastest growing companies in the world with thousands of of clients, uh, and we did it one at a time. But after moving from that company, I became, I suppose, a, you would call it a mercenary CEO. I began to hire out to be a CEO where I would specifically walk into troubled call center technology companies and, and resolve their problems within their company and put them back on the right track. And although I had success doing it, 
I wasn't my own company. And with that, I found that this investment I talk about, about making the right decisions based upon knowing things all the time, making the right decisions because you're investing your time and effort, and and being open and candid and looking people in the eye, that wasn't always what these other companies were interested in doing. They were interested in getting their issues straightened out and then not investing in the staff, not investing in the customer, not investing in the promise. In other words, how do I make more money became an early stage question instead of how do I do the next right thing and as an outcome, I'll make money. And and I tired of that. So when I was asked by Thomas Nobel to come to NobleBiz, I, I said, no, I'm not coming because I, that's not for me anymore. I'm an old, older guy now. I'm 67. And I don't have to work. I, I work because uh, it's a passion of mine if done right. But I always felt that once problems were solved in these companies, the the founders or the board got really smart about how they thought they were very good at what they did again, again, after their problems were solved. Well, I wanted to be able to, like I did with Touchstar, solve problems and then get on the right track and then do the most important thing, which is managing on the right track with, with the right basis of, of values and as an outcome, make money. So I explained that to Thomas Nobel and I said, look, I'm not really a collaborator and I'm not willing to negotiate this idea. And he absolutely understood it and assured me that, that he would participate on the level I wanted his participation, but with the opportunity to manage with the full authority that comes as if I were the owner. And it's worked great for a year and a half. Uh, this is probably the last chapter of my career, which is as long as I can go, and I see it as still many, many years to come, uh, to take NobleBiz and to use this as the vehicle to build the next generation of one of the great companies founded on culture and promise keeping with technology as a tool to be able to allow high volume contacts and areas where you have high volume of staff to connect together, to be managed well together, to have careers together, and be a leader as we move into the next generations above and beyond me. Well, there you have it. I mean, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. It was great talking to you as always. We should do it again. Well, look forward to doing it again. So if you'd like what you heard, find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends. Produced by Lauren Chasson with executive producers Steve Biederman, Lauren Chasson, and Christian Montez. Until next time.